Welcome to Hard Sell, a podcast where my friend and I give each other the hard sell on a piece of media we like, like a video game, movie, book, sports documentary, or podcast musical. My name's Tim Bloom. I'm Cody Morin. And I'm Cozy Hanula. So, speaking of sports documentary, it is well uh, chronicled on the podcast that I successfully infected you with Formula One fandom last year through, of course, Drive to Survive. Yeah, um, of course. Of course, uh, which is excellent. The new season just came out. Cozy and I binged it in, I think, 30 hours, 30 real-time hours. We watched about 10 hours of Drive to Survive. Um, and the new Formula One season, at the time of recording, starts, basically has started. Free practices were today, the first qualifying is tomorrow and then the first race is on sunday we're recording on friday so now feels like a good time to make some predictions i asked the two of you to come up with some good 2023 formula one season predictions slash hot takes i don't want any boring like max Verstappen's going to win the championship i want like <laughs> fun predictions so with that in mind cody what did you come up with for formula one predictions this year all right, so the the first one is uh, very tame overall because I didn't sure. know originally that these were hot takes, so I had written some that were this less crazy. It was a little vague. Uh, so the first one is that as much as I uh, am a fan of Ferrari, I think they're finishing third this year. I think Mercedes is coming back in full force, and they're out for blood after... Uh, a disappointing performance last year compared to the previous decade. Just out uh, of wow. curiosity, Cody, have you paid any attention to like testing and stuff so far? Oh, certainly not. Okay, <laughs> just out of curiosity. Okay. Well, I okay. Uh, one of my takes later uh, ha- paid some attention. Uh, sure, but but not in a way that is going to make for a good prediction. So, so I I like this prediction because it's <laughs> yeah. actually a hot take with this in mind. Because Lewis Hamilton came out today and said, uh, "We are worse off now than we were at the start of last year," and he thinks the team has gone completely in the wrong development direction. <laughs> And are locked into a a negative spiral. It was very like doom and gloom. So this idea that Mercedes is going to be second is a actually a pretty hot take. So <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm into it. I All can right. see it. I don't think it's crazy though. No, There's totally I think it could Lewis. Happen. Lewis is dramatic, and Mercedes yeah. is dramatic, and they have the most money and have were the best for a decade. So like. It's it's easy for them. It's so easy to imagine they just kind of like figure it out and then are really good by the end of the season. And they were pretty close last season, right? Yeah, they were good towards the end of the year. Lewis Hamilton loves to like drag the car a little bit at the beginning. Oh, yeah. He likes to like lowball Sandbag. the expectations. Yeah, he's always sandbagging a little bit. So I don't I don't know. Lewis Hamilton can, can say whatever he wants. I'm not going to believe. <laughs> Uh, if you want me to keep rolling, I can. Sure, Otherwise, keep rolling. If, you guys want if I have, right. if I have the same ones as you, or like a very similar or opposite one, I'll jump in. <laughs> but otherwise, feel free to keep rolling. All right. So my next one, uh, I thought I was looking back at some past years, and it looks to me like this pat this past year, twenty twenty two, was kind of a weird one, in that it looked like there was only one time that anyone outside the top three got a podium 
total. Yes. Uh, whereas, like, a lot of previous years, a number of people from a lot of lower teams end up on podiums, getting wins, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my related to this prediction is that I think Lando Norris is going to get a win this year. Mm. I think mm. I think there's going to be more people on the podium uh, from outside those top three teams, but I think Lando Norris is getting a win this year. I don't know how many more people are, but... I like that bold prediction. It's mm-hmm. a I I fully agree that I think there will be other people. This is also very funny that you didn't pay attention to testing because uh Will Buxton as said he thinks McLaren is the wor- has the worst car going into this year. <laughs> uh worse than Williams. Oof. Um I, I saw a bunch of rankings that had them like 8th or ninth. That said George Russell like got a pole in a Williams when it was terrible. Like yeah, people with shit cars can win. And it, it does feel like Lando Norris is too good of a driver to have never won. So like, Mm -hmm. I, I I think this is, even if their car is bad, I, I think that's a fun prediction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the last one that I had is, uh, very statistics based. So this is going all the way back to 2016. Mm-hmm. Since 2016, the winner of Free Practice 2 of the first race of the season has uh-huh. gone on to become the World Drivers' Champion. And for that reason, my prediction is that the Drivers' Champion this year is going to be Fernando Alonso. I love this. I literally told Cozy this stat earlier today. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Uh, I, I mean, I hate this prediction because I don't like Fernando Alonso at all. Um, <laughs> but, like, I think this is a very good hot take. And Aston Martin does look really frustratingly good uh, so far. I have a hot take about yep. Aston Martin and McLaren, sure. actually. So, okay. if I learned anything from actually watching the season last year, it's that testing means nothing. And last year at testing, if anyone remembers, we all thought McLaren was, like, the next big thing. And they were mediocre. And this year, I think it's going to be the same thing. I think Aston Martin overperforming in testing is a fluke, and McLaren being super bad is also a fluke. They're both going to be mediocre. It's going to be similar to last year. I don't think this is, like, indicative of anything. (laughs) Interesting. I disagree. I think Aston Martin being better is more like Ferrari being better. Like, Ferrari last year, all the buzz out of testing was like, Ferrari's amazing. They're so fast. And, like... By the end of the year, Ferrari did fall off and were, like, fighting for third. I think Aston Martin are more similar to that than McLaren last year. I don't know that I would go so far as to say that Fernando Alonso is going to win, but I do. (laughs) I think they're better than you think they are, I think. All right. Well, it's not a hot take if I just is like, I think they're at where they're at for testing, so. Okay, here. (laughs) Can I I jump in with a hot take that... uh, does make me i i that wasn't a sentence i'm gonna jump in with a hot take (laughs) all right go for it i think four of the top five drivers will be from different teams i think alonzo leclerc verstappen and george russell will be in four of the top five drivers i think the the cars are too good at following and the the teams themselves are too close together. Like, I think the Red Bull, I think Verstappen's a runaway champion. 
The Red yeah. Bull's super good, and I think Verstappen is the best. So, like, I think he's going to win, and all of the rest are close, but I kind of think each of those teams, there's such a clear... Other than Mercedes, there's such a clear number one driver and then, like, a very clear number two driver. And I think all those number ones kind of stack together, and then I think the two stack together. So I think there will be a good amount of... I think the Constructors' Championship will be close, or at least, like, second, third, fourth, fifth for the Constructors' Championship will be very close. And I think the four of the top five will all be different teams. I don't think it's going to be, like, two Red Bulls and two Ferraris and two Aston Martins or whatever. Interesting. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, I was I was trying to rank, like, the top six, uh, and I, I ended up just pulling the six from the top teams. But I did yep. have a very clear, like, uh, one, two, three for each team, being Verstappen, Leclerc, and I said Russell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Russell's just better now. I like Lewis Hamilton, but, like, I don't know. George Russell just seems like a better driver now at this point of their various careers. I mean, he's certainly less whiny, so I'd rather watch him. <laughs> and he has absolutely the best intro. Cody, did you watch the Formula oh One Oh, my God, intro? yes. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. Okay, just when you turn on quality tomorrow... Turn it on in time for the intro and keep an eye out for George Russell. It's, okay. I don't even want to say anything else. Just be, be and don't make go sure on Twitter until you watch it because there's a lot of memes though. There's so <laughs> many George Russell memes. It's hard to handle, to be honest. All right, I'll have to keep my eye out tomorrow. <laughs> keep your eye out and report back. All right, cozy. What else do you got? So most of mine are not really related to like standings or anything. That's um, fine. The only one that's, like, more related to, like, performance is that I think Albin is going to be good this year, and I think after this year he gets an offer from, or at least, like, is entertaining offers from, like, better teams than Williams. What do you mean by better teams than Williams? (laughs) I think my... I don't even know how to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Fair enough. Okay. I mean, I don't know. He seems think, too good for Williams. I think he is too good for yeah, Williams, and I think I, I think agree. other teams are. I think I might be too good for Williams. And then, okay, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Oof, <laughs> crushed. Uh, Just to be clear, I don't think Williams is good enough to be a Formula One team. So that's my uh, uh, that's my my uh, thesis there. Okay, <laughs> but Williams hasn't even lost the last like four years. Hasn't it been like Haas and Alfatari below them? Definitely not. It's no, for I sure think Williams, Williams has been last for... Oh, really? I thought Haas yeah. was last two years ago. I don't ago. think Williams scored a point two years ago. Yeah. Or they there was a stretch when Russell was with them that they hadn't scored points in a number of years. Because there was a, a theme in Drive to Survive, or like a plot line in Drive to Survive where Russell got 10th and he was crying. Because he got his first points of his career, like 50 in races in or something like that. Okay, well, all right. I maybe I'm just. I swear there was one where Haas came in below them, but I might. I'm sure there was. I'm sure there was at some point. I mean, I um, think last year, last year, or not the year before last year with the Mazepin, um, the Mazepin Schumacher Haas team, where they were like historically awful. They had like the worst car, and then they gave up trying to develop it in like May, and so they just were yeah. terrible. 2021, Williams was 8th. Alfa Romeo and Haas were below them. 
Okay, sure. No. Don't say eighth like that's a huge accomplishment. There's only <laughs> ten teams. I There's ten teams. There were eight. They beat two other teams. They aren't dead last every year. That's all I'm saying. Okay, we'll have an applause break for Williams not being dead last every year. <laughs> all right, great. Um, okay, anyway. so anyway, I think Alvin will... I think people will see his potential this year. He'll get snapped up by a better team. Um, sure. I think Drive to Survive is going to over-dramatize the ghastly Ocon uh, uh, feud or whatever they're going to call it. Mm. I think it's not going to be that dramatic, but I think uh, Drive to Survive is going to make it out like it's dramatic. I disagree with this because one of my hot takes is Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon will get into a physical confrontation this year. Um, Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon are teammates now with Alpine. Um, They hate each other. There's like this long standing, not rumor, it's basically um, confirmed that they truly hate each other. There's exactly why they've never said there's rumors it has to do with a girl. There was some Ralph Schumacher, former Formula One driver, said something about Pierre Gasly, quote unquote, stealing Esteban Ocon's girlfriend when they were teenagers. Um, I have no idea if that's true or not. But it's true enough to the extent that they seem to really deeply dislike each other. Uh, Gasly, Ocon, and Leclerc went to a basketball game earlier this year, and Gasly and Leclerc cropped Ocon out of their photos they put on Instagram. Um, Alpine has a rule that Ocon and Gasly's families cannot both come to races at the same time. For the same race. Oh, don't their like dads hate each other too? Yes, their oh, yeah, families hate each other. One. I think this hate is like real, and they're playing nice right now because it's the start of the season. It's but like dance Esteban moms, Ocon, but race car dads. Yes, race dads, <laughs> race dads and dance moms. Um, are it's it's. I think it's real, and Esteban Ocon is one of the most aggressive drivers to his own teammates. Every single time he's ever had a teammate, he got into conflicts with Sergio Perez. He got into fights with uh, Alonso. I, I he is going to ruffle feathers, and I don't think Gasly is going to. You saw how pissy Gasly got at like errors made last year that AlphaTari was making that were just errors as opposed to like maliciousness. I think there's going to be, I don't think there's going to be a punch thrown, but I think there's going to be some shouting in French. I think there's going to be some pushing. <laughs> I think it's going to happen. And I don't think it's going to be over dramatized. I think it's real. All right. We'll see. So you want to downplay it because you love Pierre Gasly. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if there is drama, it's just all going to be initiated by. Ocon. You know what? I'm fine if there is drama, though, because then Pierre Gasly gets to feature more heavily in Drive to Survive. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, a win okay, for two, everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, two more. Uh, I think once this season, uh, a team will debut a basically no-paint car, where it's basically mm. just a number, whatever they're like legally required to paint onto the car. This is based on... The trend we're seeing in uh, testing where their teams are basically using the natural black color of the car as one of their colors so they can get away with like stripping grams of paint off the car to like get a lower weight. Yeah. Uh, So I think I think there'll be someone will like totally just do a like no paint car number only. 
I think this is a good call. My bet is Mercedes. Yep. They're already pl- pretty black, and they will dress it up as like a midnight black, but it'll be their goal of uh, their attempt to try to compete with the yeah. better cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also think a driver will test the new, like, no politics, no political statements rule, and I don't think there's going to be a real punishment for it. I think it'll just kind of be like, it's. I don't think it's a real, real enforceable rule. I think someone's going to wear a helmet somewhere they're not supposed to, and it's just going to get, that, like, no one's going to care. Now, I, the question is, who do you think is going to be the first one to do that? Because I feel like there's, like, an obvious choice. I think Lewis Hamilton's going to do it this weekend. I think Lewis <laughs> yeah. Hamilton will have it. I mean, they're racing in Bahrain. He wore a rainbow helmet uh, last year in Bahrain. I He already, there was already a little kerfuffle over his jewelry yes. that the FIA just kind of ignored. Hand waved, um, yeah. waved. Yeah, I think he got a medical exception for uh, something. Yes. So jewelry, I think so. I think this is going to be a similar thing. Yeah. He's going to wear the rainbow helmet, and they're not going to. They're just going to, you know, what are they going to do? Or they will like fine Mercedes like ten thousand dollars or something, and they'll get to say they did something, but not actually do anything. Yeah, but I, I mean, I just think it's a lose lose for the FIA if they come down hard on it. People are going to get upset if they like. I mean, if they don't enforce it, people will still be upset there's even a rule. And then it's like, why have the rule if you're not going to enforce it? So I think I think it's going to get tested as a way to try to get them to, like, reverse the rule because it's dumb. Yeah, I don't think there's any way. Those are that's all my predictions. Those are good. I have I've mentioned most of mine. I just have two more. Uh, One, Oscar Piastri will not be better than Danny Ricardo. Um. I think, building off of your Lando Norris prediction, I think Lando Norris is exceptionally good. When you listen to, like, other drivers talk about who they think is the best driver in Formula One right now, they mentioned Verstappen first, and then they mention in some order, Hamilton, Leclerc, and... Nope. uh, (laughs) Hamilton, Leclerc, and Lando Norris. And, like you said, he's never won. But I, I think the McLaren is basically... A shit box. I think it's like a go kart on wheels, and Lando Norris just is incredible. And I think Oscar Piastri has a lot of hype. He's this new rookie coming in to replace this veteran who seemed to be washed up. I think the secret is he's not what Ricardo's fine, and the car's just terrible, and Norris is great. And Piastri is going to come in as a rookie, super hyped, and basically be more or less the same as Ricardo. And finally force McLaren to acknowledge that, like, their car is utter trash. Um, I I just don't believe Danny Ricardo like, fell off that hard that quickly for no reason. I I think it's more Norris and less uh, Ricardo. Especially when there's other drivers that are in here proving that, like, being older in the sport is totally fine. And they're still driving great, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it didn't ever seem like Ricardo was like throwing in the towel. I mean, I, I saw a yep. comparison that like Ferrari had a similar thing where Leclerc came in and Vettel was whining about the car constantly, and then Leclerc was beating Vettel, and it was like Vettel's washed up. And then you bring in Signs, who's really good, and he has the same complaints. And finally, Ferrari changes their car. And they're like, oh yeah, our car actually was shit. Just Leclerc's really good. Like I think. <laughs> 
I think yeah. uh, they're going to have a similar sort of like Vettel situation at uh, McLaren. Well, that's why it's so hard to really tell. Like, that's why, like, it's very hard to tell with, like, drivers and cars. Like, if, like, is Hamilton genuinely the best driver of his era? Like, is Hamilton an incredible driver? Yes. Is he the best? Who could say? Because maybe he just had the best car for eight years and no one could touch Mercedes. And, like, you put someone else in the Mercedes and they beat him. Like, unless they were all racing the same exact car, which they're not, you could never really know who's, like, the best driver that's why it's like it is still really a team sport (laughs) yes but sometimes you can know who bad drivers are and that brings me to my final hot take i think mazepin is back no (laughs) god no (laughs) um uh no uh gunther's already said he's done with uh russians Russians. until he leaves the planet i believe spoiler from uh, drive to survive but um (laughs) Gunther Gunther is on another level this season, Cody. So just yeah. keep an eye out for it. There's Ooh. it's heavy. You don't even on have Gunther. to keep an eye awesome. out because Gunther's it's always everywhere. in front of you. Everywhere. <laughs> yes. Um, last prediction: Yuki Tsunoda will get replaced by AlphaTauri partway through the season. Um, I just don't think he's got it. I think I don't think he's fast enough to be worth the inconsistency. And then I think when you pair him with DeVries, who is a, a quote-unquote rookie, I think he's going to get outperformed by DeVries. I think his mentality is going to get even worse. And AlphaTauri's under pressure right now. There were a bunch of stories that like Red Bull is thinking about selling them, or like Red Bull's new owners are have determined that it's not worth the investment. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to be under pressure to try to succeed this year. And if Yuki starts to like mental boom. I think they're going to make a change. Like, for example, a driver has done really well for them, like Alex Albin, potentially. Or maybe a different exciting rookie, like Felipe Drogovic, who's like sitting on um, Aston Martin's bench. I don't know who it'll be, but I my prediction is that Yuki will not make it through the full year. Hmm. I, I think it is. I think I get the prediction. I think it's like a... It's sort of like a sink or swim moment for him to see if he can like really take it seriously. I think he was genuinely trying to take it more seriously last year, but I just don't know if he has it in him. I just don't think he's that good, to be honest. Like, I, I don't think he has the mentality or the talent. And I you have to have at least one. Like, you have to either be great or you have to, like, work harder than everyone else. And then to win a championship, you kind of have to do both. And I don't really think he does either. And... I just think it's I think it's time. I think they will decide halfway through the year that like it's time and they will replace him like I said either with a rookie or somebody who can like get them some points over the course of the season. Yeah, like a worst like- case salvage the dumpster fire halfway through the season type of thing. Yeah, but or somebody that maybe has potential. Do they get Mick Schumacher or like, you mm-hmm. know, there there are people you could replace him with. I could see them replacing Yuki. I feel like it's so rare to replace, replace, other than Red Bull, re- fully replace a driver midway through the season. Like, I think they do, like, a Schumacher or, like, a Latifi, where they, like, let him finish out the year, but then replace him. Or, like, it's known pretty early on he's not going to, like, be in the car next year. Yeah, but that's not a hot take. 
right. Yuki leaving at the end of the his contract is up and he's shown <laughs> nothing and he's with a team who only is good for developing teams for Red Bull. So I guess, but other than Red Bull's like shenanigans with Gasly and Albin, like wh- when have they replaced a driver halfway through the year? I don't know enough Formula One history to be able to answer that question, but I'm sure it's <laughs> I'm sure it's happened. It can't just be Red Bull. It cannot this and it you know the thing that was crazy Mazepin about Red Bull like raced for like an entire year. It's because his daddy bought the team. Like his that there's <laughs> no that has nothing to do with Yuki does not have that. So uh, there's no sports wash or there's not no uh, no uh, pay drivering happening with Yuki. So I just don't. I don't know. I just don't see it. I think he gets replaced. All right. So those are my hot takes. I'm very excited for this Formula One season. I think it will be. Uh, I think it'll be an entertaining one. It seems like. Well, it seems like Red Bull's going to run away with it. But after Red Bull, it seems like everybody else. There's lots of. There should be good back and forth. It should be interesting. Alonso is going to be truly more insufferable than ever this year. But <laughs> um, we'll we'll find a way to power through. Oh, transition. Uh, speaking of pompous, rich, sometimes British boys, uh, last week I pitched you the young adult fantasy novel Amulet of Samarkand. Um, I will turn it over to you to uh, give your review. Sounds good. Uh, so yes, as Tim alluded to last time, uh, it's a book that starts off sounding very Harry Potter-esque. You've got a young boy, this time named Nathaniel. His parents abandoned him and are essentially non-existent, so he's left left to some relatively uh, crappy foster parents. Wait, One of them's sorry. fine. Just to clarify, is it? Did his parents abandon him, or is this like? I thought the idea was like this is how wizards are. Well, they sold him. They it sold is, but him. But they basically. described it. Yeah, they described it as basically taking the money and running. Oh. So they okay. sold their six-year-old to be a wizard so they could get a bunch of money, since that's the ah. only way people can become well, not wizards, magicians, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so I assume that they probably offer large sums of money to develop and indoctrinate more magicians. I see, mm-hmm. okay. Because uh, magicians yeah. are not allowed to have children. Yes. That was another point. So they right. buy okay. children from commoners uh, to... Yes, indoctrinate okay, them. I missed the finer points of that. I understand now. Um, speaking of that, uh, I did have one question because I don't think the book answered it. Um, can anyone become a magician provided the right training? Yes, it is not okay. an innate skill you have. It is like you memorize spells and you are... you. Yeah, it's it's okay. stuff you learn. It's not something you are. All right, that is that is what I thought, but uh, I was confused as to why there is like such a big disparity between the magicians and the commoners, like there is in Harry Potter with like the wizards and the Muggles, mm-hmm. when it's a very that's a very different way of becoming the thing. Yeah. For them to be such a like distinct difference. They reference I think the way this book treats it is or like the way this world is set up, it's referenced as being like a knowledge gap of the idea that like 
there's an idea that commoner most commoners don't fully understand that magicians get their power from spirits completely. They understand that yeah. spirits are a thing probably, but they it seems like I mean there's a lot of talk about like fake magic trinkets and fake magic mm-hmm. tricks on the street and stuff like that of like commoners can't tell the difference between real and fake magic. So I, my guess is there probably is a belief that like not everyone can be a, a magician and there's something special about these people. But the thing that is special is that like they have been trained since they were children to do it. And it, yeah. it like it, it, it's very dangerous and it, it requires like very specific skills, but it's not, yeah, it's not something you like you have or don't have. Okay. Um, Let's see. Oh, yes, the Harry Potter thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Where else are there some commonalities here? Uh, Nathaniel uh, is relegated to the attic, and he's not mm-hmm. allowed to meet visitors or coworkers mm-hmm. of his master, Mr. Underwood, that come over. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just referred demeaning to demeaningly as boy by Mr. Underwood because magicians are scrubbed of their birth name, uh, and given a new name at 12. Uh, mm-hmm. I will still call him Nathaniel. Sure. Speaking of which, uh, the name he picks, yeah. uh, John. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a fantasy world. You can pick any name you want. He could have picked, uh, what was the name? Theophilus Throckmorton. But uh-huh. uh, no, he picked John. And so now the main character of both of the two books we've <laughs> read for this podcast have the same generic name sorry to anyone who's listening to our podcast whose name is john yeah uh in like fantasy sci-fi worlds Mm -hmm. i love it i love that his (laughs) name is john mandrake like you just know that within this world that is just like john smith like it is the most generic nothing name that he has like been given i i love that like little chunk of the back and forth with his master of him being like i wanted like Algazor, the Indomitable. My master wanted me to be like Pythias, and like all this back and forth, and finally they settle on like John. John, <laughs> it's very, uh, yeah, it's very, it's very good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, uh, as you read more of the book, uh, it does diverge from Harry Potter a bit here and there. Mm-hmm. Um. We already mentioned that there's no bloodlines, whereas that's like a big thing in Harry Potter. Um, you just have apprentices who are taken from their parents. Uh, rather than magicians using wands to make their magic, they summon demons or have artifacts that have demons like trapped inside them to do the work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and but because the demons operate on different planes of the world, like the seven different planes, ordinary people can't see them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's different ranks of the demons. Um, the main focus of this story, besides Nathaniel as one of the characters, is a djinn who is like the third of five ranks of the mm-hmm. demons named Bartimaeus. Um, Nathaniel summons him, and the gist is that if you're summoned by a magician, they are your new master. You have to carry out whatever they ordered you to do, and if you don't, you explode. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into the meat of the story, 
I wanted to talk about some of the writing style. Sure. Um, there is... The book is written in a way that it's a very interesting back and forth where some chapters are written from Bartimaeus's first-person perspective and sometimes his third-person perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then other chapters are written from Nathaniel's perspective. And then the climax of the book ramps that up, and it's no longer split between chapters. It's like within chapters you're bouncing back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, I found it really interesting. I was like kind of confused by it at first, mm-hmm. through the first... I don't know, eight, ten chapters. Mm-hmm. But as I read more in the book, I started to like the way it was written a lot more. Um, mm-hmm. Because you would... The author whose name I'm blanking on right now... Um, Jonathan Stroud. Yes. Uh, Jonathan another John. Stroud. Another John. Another, <laughs> another, another John who made a character another, named John. Another self-insert. Perfect. At least John is not the his real name. At least this time, it's yeah, just true. his sort of fake name. It's just the name he chose for himself because it's such a good name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the way the way it's written, you get little cliffhangers because a lot of times you'll have a stretch of a few chapters in a row from one of the characters' perspectives, mm-hmm. and then it'll end on like a cliffhanger, and then it'll take you to the other character's perspective for a few more chapters before bringing you back, leaving you on a cliffhanger with that character. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of overlap where, you know, they don't know what the other has seen and done, and they're reacting based on what they guess may be happening, but uh, mm-hmm. things uh, never work out well for any of them. Um, but yeah, it's it's... You know, it's a good way to keep you reading, uh, mm-hmm. leaving you on these constant cliffhangers that you have to read a few more chapters to get back to figure out what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. In um, in that sense, it reminds me, you mentioned it last podcast, but it reminds me of like the Aragon books. They always did that of like, you're switching back and forth between the perspective of various different characters. Mm-hmm. But like... The thing this book does that I think is so interesting, and I'm sure there are other books that also do this, but this is, like, the only one I can think of, that it switches the narrative style of, like, the vast majority of Bartimaeus's narratives are first person, and the vast majority of Nathaniel's narratives are third person, and I think it, it, it uses this little stylistic tweak to very clearly set up what it wants you to take away from it which is that it is what this book is is Bartimaeus's experience of Nathaniel's story like it's the story the A plot is about Nathaniel he's the main character of the A plot but Bartimaeus is like the heart of the book is the person that you want the audience to identify with and using first person for him and then third person for Nathaniel is a really interesting, I think, creative way to, like, shortcut to that that I have not seen before. Yeah, and, like, a lot of Bartimaeus's sections, um, they include little footnotes that uh, <laughs> basically show you directly that, like, he is the one, like, it's it's being written as though, like, it's, He's the author basically telling you this story Mm -hmm. um, with all the little fourth wall breaking footnotes that he has in there. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Because, you know, they have something about how the demons have, like, four conscious levels, and so we can only operate on one as humans, so he has to give us footnotes to kind of try to replicate that. But mm-hmm. um, I do like how those are worked in, though. Um, yeah, I think I just, some... Like, Go ahead. I, I was just going to say that I like the descriptive nature of everything too, but um, we can, what did you have before that? I was just going to say, I think it is like um, the footnotes are best in my opinion, when they like ride the line between goofy personal anecdote and lore dump. And I think they're yeah. the, the worst when they are only one of those things, when it's just sort of like, I farted on this thing or what like the way they are used the best is something sort of happens and he sort of alludes to like this reminds me of a time that this thing happened that it like tells you something about the world without telling you and then sometimes it just uses them of like if you're not aware there are this many class of gin and blah 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 and you're like okay well I don't now I feel like I'm reading a Wikipedia article and I think there's (laughs) like a that when it's in the middle they're really strong and I yeah. think sometimes it can be like this is kind of a lazy way to like lore dump to me without writing it in the text. Um, but I mean, you are writing in the text; you just are pretending you're not. And so, like, I I think mostly the footnotes really work for me. And again, I think they're pretty creative. It's pretty fun. I do think there are times where they're kind of they feel pretty like lore dumpy. Yeah, but I was yeah I was generally fine with that. Um, yeah, I didn't mind that a whole lot, but. There were there was some of like that comedy stuff that didn't work for me that yeah. like that made it clear to me that this was written for a slightly younger audience than me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of that worked for me. Uh, like there was a point where um, uh, they liked to refer to people as quite obese. Uh, yeah. And one of them was his music teacher, Mr. Sindra who was playing music on like a lute or a lyre or something. And they described his, him as having uh, short fat fingers that moved like dancing sausages across the strings. I liked that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then in chapter two, uh, Bartimaeus is describing the weather as quote, peeing with rain. And I was yeah. like, I mean, okay. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's a weird choice with like that certain descriptions take that just feel like more childish written for a younger audience. Mm-hmm. But I felt like generally those sorts of things were more or less like few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't like detract too much for me. Yeah. I felt kind of the same way. This is the thing I also teed up of like, I haven't read this since I was like 10. Yeah. Um, you know, when it came out and I, I mean, it came out when I was 12. So I'm sure I was like 12 ish when I read this. And I think, uh, it, a lot of the humor and stuff like that. And a lot of the, like, again, descriptions of obese people, uh, Mm. are very young adult reader from 2005 esque. Um, I do think I do think they're relatively few and far between. So there are a couple of moments where I was kind of like, uh, like this didn't yeah. either this didn't age well or like I have aged and this is not for me anymore. Um, I think it's maybe six of one, half a dozen of the other, or whatever. But um, I think it's 
yeah, over overall, there was less of that than I was worried there was going to be, to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I powered through. Because, yeah, it was stuff like, you know, do we really need, uh, like, a third character that you need to describe uh, as, like, extremely fat who you yeah. don't like? Like, we don't... You can move past that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I really liked the... It felt like the descriptiveness between the two perspectives changed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like, from Bartimaeus's perspective, uh, things felt more flowery a little bit Mm. like more descriptive and i it they had like different focuses um Mm. on like the descriptions from each character's perspective gave you the things that that character was more focused on Mm -hmm. and then when it would switch to the other characters if they were in the same room it would be like a clearly different focus for that character Mm -hmm. Um, and i liked how that was written too um, mm-hmm. and then just generally some of the descriptive work, uh, and like the imagery that Jonathan conjured, uh, particularly with the like big bad that gets summoned at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it's, it, it was cool. Like it, the, the writing was cool for that section. Um, how it was describing the big bad coming out of the rift and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoyed that. Yeah, like, it's clearly a young adult book, and it yeah. is written for kids, generally. Like, it's written at, at a kid writing level, and when it uses big vocabulary, is meant to evoke, quote-unquote, big vocabulary rather than use it. It's, like, pretty... It's Again, the plot's pretty straightforward. It's pretty, like, um, linear. It, it spells out a lot of stuff. Like, it's, it's media for kids, but yeah. you can tell within that that he's a good writer, that he understands how to write with different character voices, that he understands how to, like, evoke things. And this is the, you know, you can have media targeted towards kids that maybe doesn't have the depth that you can do with media towards adults, but you can still tell the quality is high. And even as I reread this, I did, I felt the same of, like, the the quality of this is pretty good. Like, I'm getting mm-hmm. drawn in despite the sort of, like, I juvenile feels like really backhanded, but like the juvenile style of writing. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. Um, as far as I had some a couple weird things about the world of the book mm-hmm. uh, that I had noted. I had a hard time grasping when this story is taking place in time. Sure, sure. Uh, because <laughs> it it gives you like little glimpses here and there um, that you just it's like a word or two you have to pick out so like the first one I think was you know I'm picturing this knowing that it is sounds familiar to Harry Potter I'm picturing (laughs) it like same time frame and then he mentions uh, an ice cream truck I was Mm -hmm. like oh okay so maybe it's a little bit more modern than that Mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe we're talking like 50s 60s and then he mentions uh, spying on one of the main bad characters, Simon Lovelace, and that he is typing on a laptop computer. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is quite a bit more modern than that. Sure. Uh, but then, later in the book, uh, there is a, like, 
very stereotypical, like early 1900s paperboy out shouting mm-hmm. for for the Times, uh, for the morning edition of the Times. It's like, okay, well now, now mm-hmm. I just am confused as to the title <laughs> of this book. Yeah, there's a lot of. I wish I I had this because when I was reading this, I was doing. I wasn't like googling when is this set. I think it's set in like 2000 ish yeah. is when it's supposed to be. But it is. Uh, there is something intentional of he wanted to marry like modern technology with like older sensibility of the, there's an idea of like people still use muskets to fight. And I think the, uh, his idea, and I don't know that this is mentioned in this book, but in future books, it will be mentioned. They have like single shot firearms. And the okay. reason is because like mages control the world. So, they don't want automatic weapons in the hands of common. So there's like a, a little bit of a weird, like back and forth there. Um, but yes, it is a little like that is not explained because everything that is actually explained is through Bartimaeus's eyes. And Bartimaeus yeah. is not, you know, he's a spirit. He's not like spending time talking about specific human technology stuff. So right. it is, you are just kind of left to like, it is. It both feels very modern. It. I remember when I read this book. I remember feeling jarred when it was like we got into a car and blah blah blah. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Like it does bounce <laughs> back and forth from feeling very, you know, old fashioned. A lot of the spirit stuff is very like Arabian Nights inspired. Uh-huh. Um, and then suddenly, like you said, somebody's typing on a laptop or somebody is like, you know referencing texting someone or whatever and it's like well, this is yeah it is taking it's, like modern public transit options yes yeah. yeah it's a very it's interesting uh but it, there is some whiplash there um the the other thing i had a hard time kind of understanding was the need for the seven planes hmm. uh like i get i get the idea but it just it felt like it was added out of convenience to hide things from people so mm. they could be surprised by them. I don't know. It just it felt clunky and not particularly well explained the need for. Sure. And maybe the next books in the fr- trilogy like flesh out the idea a bit more, but it just felt like a very, very convenient, rigid way of keeping like power levels between people and demons set. Yeah, I think um the existence of different planes and like the ability of various people to be able to see on them or not becomes very important later. Um I mean it's important in this book too, but like yeah. it becomes a plot point later. Um but is also yeah, having the seven level it screams like it, I think it is one example of the thing that, like, the Harry Potter books are fucking filled with, which is just, like, <laughs> gratuitous random world things to, like, make the world seem crazy yeah. and, and interesting without a lot of thought behind it. And I think... So, basically, I'm like, yes, I agree with you. It, I think this is a that is a weak point of this book that is, like, this is my my whole rant about Harry Potter is that it's filled with shit like this. And yeah. So yes, I agree that this is, this is kind of like a Harry Potter ass, like 
uh, random added complexity thing for the sake of like, let's make the world be even weirder and even, you know, we can't have a, a spirit plane and a not spirit plane plane we have to have seven of them and it's like okay all right yeah and you have to like when you're young you get to wear glasses that let you level up and see the first two planes but then when you hit 12 you get contacts that let you see three planes and yeah like yeah i don't know it's just i i i'd be interested reading the future books to see how they handle it going forward to see Mm -hmm. if they like do more interesting things with it but at least in this first book in the series, yeah, it just felt clunky and, like I said, just kind of added out of convenience. But yeah, um, going into some more story spoilers, uh, I guess a big spoiler right off the bat. You had talked during Andor that Nemec was the most dead character you had seen. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Uh. I honestly felt that way about Mrs. Underwood. Sure. Sure. Uh, by, like, chapter, like, seven or eight. Because mm-hmm. the story, especially early on, where really most of the story, was written in a way that, like, nothing good can happen to or for Nathaniel. Yep. His other one good character in his life, Mrs. Lutians, mm-hmm. uh, was taken away from him. And I was like, there's no way Mrs. Underwood makes it out of this story alive. She's, like, too simple and too good for Nathaniel to have in his life going forward. Yeah. Uh, happy to report that I was correct on that. It just took <laughs> a while to get there in the story. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, uh, I still think Nemec is a more dead character. I can't yeah. imagine a more dead character than Nemec, but <laughs> you, I think you're fully correct. It's way, it's so obvious that like she can't, she knows, she knows he's Nathaniel. He can't, she can't stick around. Like, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I know it's you're big on predictions and like trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And I'm I'm normally not, but I very distinctly wrote this in my notes that I was like, "There's no way this doesn't happen." Very nice. Very nice. I remember uh, being shocked as a twelve year old when she died. But <laughs> oh, I'm um, sure I won't hold that against my twelve year old self. <laughs> you've you've uh, that happened to you, and you were like, "Never again." I, will I know. Never from again now will on. I be shocked. <laughs> I will either predict or read the Wikipedia ahead of time. There you go. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so as far as this, the actual story goes, so you've got, I had mentioned earlier, Simon Lovelace, uh, big bad uh, wizard, magician guy. Um, he stole an ancient artifact, which is the Amulet of Samarkand, from the title of the book. He had humiliated Nathaniel... Uh, though, like, one time he was allowed downstairs to see uh, his master's co-workers, and Nathaniel wanted revenge, and so he steals the amulet from Simon, uh, mm-hmm. which leads to basically all the rest of the problems throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some features of the story as it goes along that if I didn't know this was a trilogy would have been odd. Sure. But I assume they get fleshed out in later books. Uh, for example, all of the resistance stuff. Yep, yep. Uh, it's never really explored. Nope. It's just sort of like a nebulous conflict, uh, bad guy commoner thing that's happening. 
we see like flashes of it. There's a boy who attacks a meeting of parliament. And mm-hmm. then there are kids in the street who attack uh, at one point Bartimaeus after he's stolen the amulet. And then later Nathaniel because mm-hmm. he has the uh, his spyglass, his magic mm-hmm. demon spyglass in his pocket. Uh, senior members of parliament talk about it. But it's not really seen or dealt with beyond that. It just mm-hmm. kind of happens a couple times throughout chapters in the book. It's mentioned by people, and that's it. There's no like conflict or resolution to anything resistance related. So if yep. this was like if this book did not take off and this person only wrote this one book, it would be like a very odd it would feel like a very odd addition to the book. Yeah, it's clear yeah. sequel fodder. Yes, very, very much so. Um, but knowing that the b- series is like a trilogy, uh, it makes it, you know, more interesting as something to to look forward to in the future books. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, it becomes the thing. Right, yeah. like the this book is about like Nathaniel's origin and explaining how he, uh, his origins and his rise to notoriety, and then like the thing, if I'm remember again, if I'm remembering correctly, is the resistance is becomes a thing. There are characters who are hinted at as major characters who become major characters. Um, who you meet very briefly in this book, who become yeah. like the focus of the next two books. But it's yeah, they're they're a brief cameo. This story is just like Nathaniel's intro with hints at bigger stuff before yeah. bigger stuff happens later. And that makes sense. And it like I am interested to see how the future books handle that based on uh well, I guess we can talk about, like, the commentary in the book, essentially, that's made on class mm-hmm. uh, between, like, magicians and the commoners and, like, indoctrination. Because you see Nathaniel indoctrinated into his belief on magicians very early on in his teachings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he's at one point talking to his art teacher, Miss Lutians, and he's basically speaking to her as though he is, like fully above her in society because he's a magician and she's a commoner even though he's only like 9 or 10 at the time mm-hmm. um, he's talking to his other teacher Mr. Purcell who's talking badly about the, the evil commoners that need to be kept down or whatever he says mm-hmm. and Nathaniel calls him out on the fact that he himself is a commoner regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not he works with magicians and um yeah, it's uh, it sets up a an interesting commentary commentary about it that takes place throughout the course of like the whole book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it that is like what the series wants to talk about broadly. Yeah. That like you know this book is the first book, but like that that is what it wants to say is like how does this how you know what is the natural end point of the way magicians treat commoners? And it's not a happy one. Yeah. And we, we get glimpses of that too, using that multiple perspective writing that we saw earlier. Cause when we're seeing Nathaniel's perspective, we just see 
how he's behaving based on all the things he's been taught, like those two teachers I talked about. But when we talk, when we see Bartimaeus's perspective, anytime he's talking about it, it's usually talking about all these other societies where magicians ruled at one point and then were overthrown mm-hmm. by the non-magicians and now magicians like are reduced to doing like parlor tricks in bars for money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it very clearly feels like that. It, that is what it is setting up this series to be. Um, we just don't see as much of it in this first book. Cause like you said, it's like Nathaniel's rise to, uh, the fast track in the government and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like broadly speaking, uh, I I referenced the point of this, like the this book is Nathaniel's story from Bartimaeus's point of view, and like th- that's true of this book, but it's true of this series. Like that's what the series is. The series yeah. is like Nathaniel's story from Bartimaeus's point of view. And so, yes, you have read, and if anyone has read the first book, you've read a third of the story, and it does not end, you know. There's there's a break, but the story's very obviously not over. And, like, the, the, it's not concluded in any real meaningful way. Like, the themes themselves have not concluded, and, like, the A-plot stuff, you know, the immediate thing has happened loveless is dealt with but like the character arcs are very obviously not finished yeah and i think i think there's like a couple year gaps between each this book and like each of the next books and yeah i think i think it's like three ish years between books generally um but yeah i mean the the story generally like you said, it's it's pretty straightforward. I don't think we need to go into like all the specifics on the story. If people, if this sounds like a story that people would be interested in, um, you know, you certainly go ahead and go read it. Um, there's a lot to it that we don't need to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I think that like you said, it it definitely felt like that was like the goal, like the main kind of undertone of the book was that setting all of that up Mm -hmm. yeah for sure um honestly i didn't have like a ton of other notes that i wrote on this um Mm -hmm. besides like all of my story notes that like i I don't think we need to get into all of them but yeah um cool cozy i know you read this book too is there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't already um no, I don't think so. I do think like the the magic through like using demons to do magic, like you have this like class of slaves essentially that is like doing the magic for you yeah. is interesting. Um as a way to like set it up and then having one of the perspectives be the perspective of one of the jinn, you know, so like you are it's not like house elves where mm. every the perspective is always the people who are in power. You know, yeah. uh, not to keep bringing it back to Harry Potter, but to keep bringing <laughs> it back to Harry Potter, I guess. Uh, yeah. But I, I just think like because it humanized the Jin in such a like good way, and it, it, 
it like gave you the perspective that like I because I think Nathaniel's clearly not like a good person and like there's something to be said about whether that's indoctrination and like he was six when he was abandoned and put into this like household where he was you know basically trained to be told he was better than everyone so like how much of it is his fault but like he's also being exposed to the other side and not changing his mind so like there's that and so like I think I'm really curious to see where it goes. I liked the book overall, and I think I'm, like, really interested to see, like, where they take that side of it, because I felt like that was, like, the most interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because the, um, having that perspective of, like, humanizing Bartimaeus makes you think about the fact that, like, all of the different, like, demons that get summoned also have their own personalities. Like, you see it in the imp that Nathaniel summons into his spyglass. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. That he, that imp has like a very clear, like personality and voice, which speaking of which, uh, every time that imp had a line, uh, I read it in your, uh, imp voice, Tim, that you use in our D and D campaign for, (laughs) um, Oh my gosh, wait, I did too. I didn't even put that together though until just now. (laughs) That's very funny. It was Guy's voice. The, Guy, yes. yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Which is a player character's imp. Yeah, it's in a little bit campaign. like this. Something, yeah. something close to this. Yes, um, that, <laughs> that was this imp's voice to me the whole book. That is extremely funny because that imp's voice to me is Danny DeVito. That's that imp's <laughs> voice to me. Um, uh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think. Um, there's not a lot that I could say here. This is the problem with pitching you one book, which truly is like act one of three, um, without spoiling more. But I also was not going to pitch you 1,500 pages to read in, <laughs> in two weeks uh, across three books. So, yeah, yeah, I think, like, the two things that are most interesting about this world, in my opinion, are, like, the relationship between people and spirits and, like, what they owe to each other and, like, how that... You know, like Cozy said, they they are slaves. They're used as slaves. They're, like, summoned and enslaved and are, like, sometimes released, sometimes trapped in objects forever. And, like, are... How does that get... How does that go? How does that end? And then the same sort of, like, class issue of you have these slave masters, functionally, who use their slave class as a weapon against people who don't have them in order to take power and like what is the where do the those two relationship those two like sociological forces are like what the series cares about and that is why i like this so much is because i like sociology i like the idea of like what is the how are society how are groups of people relating to each other and you use nathaniel and bartimaeus and another character who i won't name but another character who becomes kind of the third face um across the last two books uh to explore those sorts of things and like that style of storytelling of let's let's think about the society through people instead of super super character focused are what like gets me most excited and that for me is what like sets this book apart from like most other just sort of like super character focused young adult stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, but, as far as again, like young adult it's... story writing goes, all of that felt more interesting than anything, you know, I had remembered reading when I was a kid. Yeah. I also, the other thing I really liked that was just like a moment in the book that I think was just like really good writing and really took me off guard was um, very early in the book, the Jin or Bartimaeus finding out Nathaniel's name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Not And not his fake John name, his actual birth name, which again in this world is the way you have power over other beings, the way magicians have power over demons is they know their name. So if a mm-hmm. demon has p- knows a magician's name, they have some kind of like power over them. And it's not really clear what that is, but like it, it's clear that there is something. And it like basically when that... Means, it means they can like ignore or negate a certain amount of pressure. And so That's right, yeah. Nathaniel then like finds ways to... Uh, blackmail and extort Bartimaeus Mm -hmm. through more than just magic Um, but like that is the yeah they they cannot just openly do whatever they they can't force them to do things if you know your it takes away their like slave power they don't Mm -hmm. have the chains anymore to a certain extent yeah yeah well cause like cause the moment in the book so so far, all we've really seen is, like, Nathaniel summons this demon. It seems like he's got it all under control. He's gotten all these uh, little runes that he has to write correct. And he's, like, clearly, like, a really young to be doing this, but he's totally doing it good. And then all of a sudden, like, the, like, uh, he, not even he makes a mistake, but the, like, Jin is, like, Underwood. moving yeah, through the house and mrs underwood says his birth name and the mistake he made is letting someone call him by his birth name but like he doesn't have another name yet so like what are you gonna do you could you just go yeah. by boy like so and you can just like my like stomach like dropped because i was like oh my god no like that's like the one <laughs> thing they've said all book you can't do and it happened like in like the first third of the book i was like oh like now what like he has power in like the whole rest of the thing like this is crazy so i really liked that part i thought it was really really smart and i'm i don't know if that's going to come back to bite him i'm sure it will but um it's interesting for sure yeah i mean again without without big spoilers it sets up a super what i think is like a really really interesting character dynamic between bartimaeus and nathaniel of yeah. like, uh, you know, they've been through this thing together, but also he can't. It's it says a the book says a thousand times like the thing that makes a good magician is control is about like, you know, they're slave masters. The thing that sets the best ones apart is they are able to like maintain control and predictability over more and more powerful slave demons and like this demon who's done well for him and he can feels like he can trust there are moments where like Bartimaeus helps Nathaniel when he doesn't have to mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but also you know is a risk like I, I mean you know Bartimaeus knows his name what were to happen if Nathaniel were to uh have enemies within parliament and then they summon Bartimaeus and say hey I know you worked with this guy do you know his name like what that's a uh that's a pretty big risk and like that dynamic between the two of them I think is a really fun dynamic to play off of well and 
Yeah, I think it also sets up is not only like magician is it control that they need, but it's almost like perfection of like yeah. they're constantly having to like put these like safeguards in place to make sure because the you know the gin they're enslaving basically are trying to find any way out of it like they're because it like physically hurts the gin to like not follow the orders mm-hmm. based on like the runes the magicians are using so then it's like it's not only about like or the way they get control is like being perfect like always anticipating like p- putting really specific things that like on, on any contingency is covered by like their spells they've cast or whatever and then imagine doing that for 10 different djinn or demons or whatever with different personalities that have different like things they're trying to exploit so like you really have to have like this huge level of like perfection and again the first third of the book our main character immediately messes up (laughs) and just like totally in like the worst way possible like it was just a really really cool like i move i wasn't expecting so there is some more good uh, comedy there, too, because uh, Nathaniel is having the wor- uh, worst day of his life as this <laughs> demon is uh, learning his name. And then he turns to look and Bartimaeus is letting him know that he is definitely there and definitely heard as uh-huh. a spider on the wall doing a little dance, just staring at him. So, yeah, yeah. Over, I think that is the best humor for me in this book came from like Bartimaeus being different creatures, being like yeah. uh, the description of him being like a marmoset karate kicking through a window, <laughs> like different, just like various creature stuff, like a pigeon fending off advances from another pigeon. Like uh, <laughs> yeah. those, those were the moments, again, humor, pretty juvenile, whatever. That's the kind of stuff, uh, you know. Crocodile Loki works on me. Weird animal things work on me. I don't know why. I don't know what that says about me, but it continues to be true in this, these books. Yeah. Uh, cool. Okay. Well, I think we've talked about everything I wanted to talk about, too. So um, if you had to give the Amulet of Samarkand a yah or a nah, uh, Cody, what would you give it? I would give it a yah. Um, I think there is, you know, it does some interesting stuff that definitely, like we've talked about, is set up for the next couple books. But it's it's enough that it's gotten me interested in checking out the next two books at some point in the future. Um, with the threads that it has pulled this far, um, you know, uh, I, I think overall it was well written. I really liked the two different perspectives. Um how that bounced back and forth by the end of the book. I really enjoyed that, and uh, I thought it was a good, fun read. Yeah, I'm I'm glad. And yes, I would encourage you at some point to read the next two books because they are... Um, I think it continues to get better. I think the second book is okay, and the third book is like very, very, very good. And it's like one of my favorite fantasy books that I've read, and I think pays off, again... I have not read these since I probably was 13 or 14. So, you know, TBD. But In My Memory is, like, one of my favorite books I've read. And it has, like, a multiple of those gasp moments Cozy was talking about where I was like, they are willing to take big swings that are, um, I think, really cool. So I'm glad you liked it. And I think it, uh, if you're into it, I suspect you probably will like the next ones too. I probably would. Nice. All right, it is time for the middle segment. Uh, Cozy, what do you got? 
All right. Um, I'm titling this middle segment, maybe I'm missing something, um, because it's sort of a rant, but it's also like a, it's a phenomenon I've noticed or like, like I've seen popping up recently that I'm just like really baffled by. So I want to get your guys' thoughts on it. Great. Uh, okay. Okay. Are you guys aware of, so I keep getting like these ads on Instagram for like, uh, like TV show experiences. So it'll be like the friends experience or like the stranger things experience or the office experience. No, I have the office experience every business day though. So I don't (laughs) know what that could be. So it's like, as far as I understand it, it's like, a company like comes to a city and like rents out like an open storefront basically and sets up like sets like recreate sets from a tv show so like the friends one is like they'd recreate the apartments or they'd recreate you can like have your picture taken at the coffee shop the central perk coffee shop they'll like redo the set of that or like i because i saw like someone i follow on instagram who i don't know personally went to like the friends one they had like a photo of them with doing the pivot thing with the couch like it's Mm -hmm. that kind of thing where like you basically it's like you're visiting the set of the thing but it's not really the set of the thing it's a recreated set someone like came into your city and just like set up interesting uh yes i am familiar with these uh kayla actually went to one of them um, I'm blanking on the name. Oh, of the Bridgerton, show. right? Bridgerton, Bridgerton, yes, the Bridgerton. Kayla went to the Bridgerton experience, but t- I think the Bridgerton experience is a genuine ball. Like yes, it's like it a is. dance, and that- yeah, like they got all dressed up, and they did like they teach them how to dance at it, like a couple different simple dances, and that one makes sense to me because it's a dance, and dances are fun. And how often do you get an opportunity to do that as like an adult, other than like at weddings? So like. Yeah, I get that one because it's like an event, like it's like a just themed after Bridgerton. But these other ones where it's like you go and take pictures with like the seat, the set, it felt like to me it feels like Disney World or Disneyland, but like without the rides. <laughs> and so I was trying to figure out like, am I just like missing something that's like fun <laughs> about these, or is it? And I was also thinking. Would Disneyland be fun without the rides? Like, I like <laughs> Disneyland, but, like, is it... I don't know if I would go if it was just, like, themed amusement areas that are themed after TV shows if I didn't have, like, a kid with me, you know? Uh, yeah, are you familiar with um, selfie museums? Oh, my I think God. I've that like... just made me take psychic damage <laughs> to hear that <laughs> phrase. <laughs> because It's just because... like they set up, like sets and so you can go like take pictures like you're an influencer yes and so this it's it stuff like the friends experience reminds me of a selfie museum just themed and nostalgia based sure like that yeah. that is like how i have thought of them essentially that it's like you're not you know you're not going to like meet the characters there's not like attractions or anything like that it's just like is set pieces that you can go get your picture taken in and I don't know really what else there is to it than that like yeah I mean uh, like you can buy merch and all these things too but yeah also what so out of curiosity what would you personally pay to go to like a and maybe it's a franchise you like I don't know I like the office generally like as a show 
Friends, I don't think aged particularly well, so I probably wouldn't pay anything to go to the Friends one, but, like, <laughs> for, like, uh, the Office theme, where it's, like, it's not your favorite show, but maybe you like it, what would you pay to go to one of these? Would you pay anything to go to one of these? I mean, considering that it's, like, it is what we just described as, like, not really a whole lot more to it than that, I feel like I would limit it at, like, 20 bucks. Yeah, see, we have had a real conversation about um, not really a real conversation, but like kind of a real conversation about the Star Wars hotel multi-day <laughs> experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but like, yeah, that, that is, that's basically my answer also. If I can imagine, the thing is this, like, I don't care about any given media so much. Okay. Let's say like Andor or like better out, like Outer Wilds. If there was like an Outer Wilds museum exhibit. That, like, you could oh. walk through the museum or whatever. That's probably the thing that would be most appealing to me. Yeah. I would probably pay... If this is, like, a limited time thing that's, like, a pop-up Outer Wilds thing where I can walk through a recreation of the museum on Timber Hearth plus additional stuff. Put on a VR headset and walk through the stranger. Sure, yeah. <laughs> like, see life model. Maybe ideally see, like, behind-the-scenes stuff from the game. I would probably pay $40. I, I think mm. that's probably my limit of, like, a day thing. If it's, like, a limited time. If it was, if it was outer, again, at, at the most, the thing I would be most interested in in the world, probably, like, $40. If you're talking about, like, what's a show I like but don't love? Let's say, like, Scrubs or something, right? Like, uh -huh. I, I really like Scrubs, <laughs> okay. but, like, it's not, I don't have, like, you know, I don't have quite the emotional attachment to Scrubs I do Outer Wilds. Uh, the answer is probably, like, like Cody said, like, 15-ish dollars, probably. Okay. What do you think these cost? I bet, like, a hundred. Yeah, too I bet it's much. double. I'd say 80 79 uh, You're both actually over. The, like, oh. base price to just, like, do the picture stuff is, like, $50, and then they have different, like, you can do a tour for more. You can do get much. merch included for more. But 50 is, like, the base price for, like, the friends experience in New York. I'm sure they're all different prices, but that seemed like a general, like, starting point. Well, Cozy, what did we pay? We went to London, and we went to 221B Baker Street. Did we pay for that? I don't think that one costs money. I thought that was, like, free. If it did, it was not that much. It was, like, $20 or, or 20 less. pounds. Like, I think it, it wasn't a lot. Yeah, but, like, I don't think... If that was, like, a whole thing, I don't... Like, I knew that was going to be, like, a five-minute kind of... Yeah. And it was, like, on the way to something else. Like, it wasn't... And we were on vacation. Like, you need something to do. So, yeah. Like, we did go to 221B Baker Street. That's true. Well, I was also, like... One of my questions was going to be, like, which... What franchise would get you interested enough to, like, go to the experience for it? Because I was thinking about, like... Genuinely, when Disneyland announced a San Fran Tokyo <laughs> world... It genuinely made me want to, like, go to that until yeah. I saw photos of it and realized it's literally Pier 39, which I live maybe 10 minutes from. So, like, I probably don't need to go to that. <laughs> oh. And, like, because yeah. okay. like, once you look at the photos, you're like, oh, this is just, like, crappy Pier 39. Pier 39 is already kind of crappy. So, like, <laughs> what am I, I going to get here? <laughs> it's just, like, it sounds fun because I love 
uh, Big Hero 6, the movie, but, like, I think when I'm there, I'm going to be pretty disappointed because it's more or less the city I live in <laughs> combined with <laughs> Tokyo, I guess. The flip side of that, though, uh, also at Disneyland is the Cars area, which is, like, <laughs> on point. It is, okay. uh, if you are a fan of Cars walking through, like, that at night, um, with all the, like, neon on, like, in the movie and all that. Very cool. Like, that stuff like that, I would pay for for, like, a Disney park. Not not the exorbitant prices that you pay now. Um, mm-hmm. But for, maybe $50. Like, <laughs> like, 50 I mean, even, like, if, if they had a bunch of the Disney properties that were of the quality of set pieces that are in the Cars area. Okay. Um... I'd probably pay upwards of like a hundred, but uh, it would have to be like multiple big properties of <laughs> that Disney's you in one liked. spot that I pay to get the whole package. Yeah, like if they could put in one thing like a Bartimaeus trilogy <laughs> and or and Outer Wilds next to each other, I would pay over a hundred dollars for that. There you but, go. No, that's not going to happen. That uh, it's, uh, Those are three things that will never be together. <laughs> so, Well, I think, too, like, because, Tim, you mentioned the Star Wars cantina experience yeah. thing, which, again, is, like, exorbitantly priced, like, it's way like more than... Thousands of dollars. But, like, oh, yeah. to me, and I, I don't think I would go to that for the cost it is, but if it was, like, $300, because it includes, like, you're staying at a hotel, there's, like, themed food and drinks like if feel everyone's like in costume and like you get to meet led droids and stuff like there's like actors it's more like an interactive like mystery movie or what's the thing like mystery theater thing kind of but like star wars themed like it feels like more of an experience than just like going and taking photos with star wars themed like sets you know like i think it is slightly different in my mind of like it feels like a little more but I also feel like I would get to the Star Wars thing and be like, actually, this is kind of weird. <laughs> I think this is my th- this is why I would never do it is because I think there's such a high percentage chance that after like an hour and a half, I'm kind of done with it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of yeah. like, this is like, I'm like, I'm there's this a this is not my crowd. B, this is just not I can't cosplay as a Star Wars character for multiple days straight. I don't. Uh, it's too, it's too big of a commitment. I think is the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for anyone, like, <laughs> for anyone not familiar with it, yeah. it's the uh, Galactic Star Cruiser, uh, which is like a specialty hotel where they have specific like two night, two day stays at the hotel, and it's all like themed and role played as though you are on a star cruiser in the star wars universe and i think uh prices start for two guests uh your total would be about five thousand dollars wow it's just it's you could that's like the down payment on a car yep yeah (laughs) i can buy a real pt cruiser as opposed to a star (laughs) cruiser for that amount of money and it's just i just don't i I don't love any individual... I love so few individual media enough, and the ones I love are so rarely the giant, like, big-budget Disney... 
I mean, Andor's Disney, but like my love is for Andor very specifically. Like I don't love Star Wars that much. I love like individual things, and so yeah. like that is the. I don't. I'm just. I'm just not that guy. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking too that like the other thing is that anytime I'm in like a touristy thing or whatever, the thing that ruins it for me are like the other people. So like, <laughs> I feel like part of it is like it's not. I'm not like gonna go like pay for a thing and then it's gonna be like, like if I could pay it and like I was the only person or I knew everyone that was gonna be there, like that would be way better than if I have to pay and there's also a bunch of strangers there. Like and you're like, you know shoulder to shoulder like t- try- standing in line so you can go sit on the one couch and get one picture taken for like five seconds like there's nothing worse than that experience in my mind and like you feel like a dumb tourist like the whole time yeah <laughs> it like takes all the joy out of the thing so like I was like I really feel like this is probably and I again like I understand in theory why someone might enjoy this I just feel like it's very much not for me so I was like but I think there's maybe a version of it that is for me. And I think it's Tim's pitch of an Outer Wilds one. Um, so I can, like, I'm not genuinely not judging people who, like, go to these. I just was like, I don't understand the appeal to this uh, for me. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, and I've we've been going a long time in this middle segment, so I can wrap it up here. There is a Titanic experience where they, like, it, I don't Dunk think it's you actually... in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> I don't think it's on a ship. I think it's just like a recreation of like the rooms and the food and like stuff like yeah. that um, from like that time period, which just kind of feels like a historic, you know, like the recreated like Wild West towns and stuff that they do. Like it seems a little more similar to that to me than. Um, but like genuinely, if there was a Titanic themed cruise, would you <laughs> go on it? I mean,. No. I do like cruises. I don't know. It's tempting. I'm not a big cruise guy, let alone one that sinks. Ideally, <laughs> my cruise doesn't sink. So, no. I mean, the thing I associate with the Titanic, also, and I don't know whether this is fair or not, but, like, I associate, like, irresponsible, like, lustful opulence in a way that, like, doesn't... That I could see being interesting for a day, for for a, at two hours to like mm-hmm. walk through and be like, wow, people really lived like this. In the same way that like, it's really fascinating to walk through like castles in Europe, but not in a way that like I want to cosplay as a little princeling. Like I don't need to cosplay <laughs> as like a utter entitled socialite asshole who was on the Titanic. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't. I don't think that would appeal to me. Sure. That's fair. In general, like historical stuff is also is interesting to me. If there's like a, you're going to do this, you know, I'm going to, I don't know exactly what this would be. If I'm going to take a day to like walk through, God, I'm getting old. If I'm going to take a day to like walk through like the Civil War, like, and walk through battles and like see talk about i like history so there is like there's a certain like historical thing that is more appealing to me than like media right stuff but again it's one of those like i kind of think i probably lose interest a couple days or a couple days like a couple hours in sure okay 
Yeah, so, I, I mean, I've seen ads for a lot more of these lately. I think they must be coming to San Francisco, and I follow a lot of the, like, what to do in San Francisco pages, so. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I guess if anyone out there, like, goes to one and had a blast, let me know. I'm genuinely curious uh, about the experience. All right. Let us know. Reach out with your, your favorite in-person pop-up media real life experiences or whatever they're called just make sure to send it to hard sell show at gmail.com there you go all right for our final segment we have this week's hard sell cody uh take it away sure uh tim there is a genre of video games that i've wanted to pitch you something from for a while uh how do you feel about what one dating sim uh, not dating sim, unfortunately. Mm. That's that's uh, probably next on the list. But Got it. first, how do you feel about rhythm games? Ooh. Well, I used to play Guitar Hero. Does that count as a rhythm game? It does. Okay. Like I liked Guitar Hero in like middle school, but I haven't played them much, if at all. Okay. So some of my favorite games are rhythm games. It's one of my favorite genres of games. You've got peripheral-based ones. So growing up, I played a lot of Dance Dance Revolution. Um, sure. And then you also have, like, Rock Band, Guitar Hero, Clone Hero. Uh, Clone Hero being a, like, PC release that's been worked on recently where you can basically import, like, any song you want. Um, mm-hmm. I still bust out one of my guitars every once in a while and load up one of these to rock out for a bit. It's just a very fun, well-designed game game back in the heyday it was a great party game mm-hmm. um if i feel like getting a little workout in i'll grab my oculus and play a bit of beat saber sure beat saber um, is good beat saber is yeah. very good uh smaller scale uh on like the ds 3ds some of my favorite games on those systems were uh rhythm heaven and mm. the two Final Fantasy theater rhythm games. I just ordered the third one that just came out on sure. the Switch. Um, there's another one called Crypt of the Necro Dancer that released a Zelda spin-off game where you have to like move to the beat in like Zelda perspective gameplay. I think I heard about this, yeah. Um, that one's great, but I've struggled a bit coming up with one to pitch you because I just didn't know if there was enough meat on any of these games apart from the actual like rhythm game itself Mm -hmm. to like pitch you on and maybe depending on how this goes maybe I'll change my opinion on one of those in the future but (laughs) um, for this pitch I'm gonna uh, have you play a pretty new release uh, which is called Hi-Fi Rush Hmm. Interesting. I feel like this has been everywhere, and I know nothing about it. I feel like yes. I've seen a bunch of like ads for it, and people seem to like it. I didn't even know it was a rhythm game, though. It is. So, it is a rhythm. It's like if you took a rhythm game and crashed it into like Devil May Cry or some other similar like third-person action combat game. <laughs> um. There is a, like, fully fleshed-out story. It's very over-the-top and anime-esque in terms of, like, character design, particularly, like, the bosses. Mm -hmm. Um, You play as a guy named Chai, who's a dude with a broken arm who decided instead of, you know, getting waiting for it to heal, 
He instead visits his local megacorp and gets sure. his arm replaced with a robotic one. The process Classic. goes wrong. And Tales he also I know, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also merges with his MP3 player. Great. And so from then on, he can create a big uh, guitar weapon and he feels the beat of the music. And as you fight to the beat, uh, you do more damage. Um, and so it's, I think it's done really well in the way it handles the actual rhythm game portions. Cause you're basically playing like, you know, a third person action fighter, like a platinum game or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. but all of your attacks, whether or not you hit them on the beat with your buttons, the attacks happen on the beat and the mm-hmm. enemy's movements and attacks also happen on the beat. Um, and so it gets you in a rhythm really easily, I find, um, where you are, at least for me, I'm like naturally hitting it on the beat anyway. Mm-hmm. And by hitting the button on the beat when your attacks are happening, they do more damage, you do bigger combos, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think all that's really well done. And I'm interested, especially knowing that you haven't had a ton of experience with rhythm games. I'm interested to see your thoughts on it. Yeah, I'm curious. The thing this is actually reminding me of, it's not technically a rhythm game, but it's reminding me of um, Tetris Effect, where the way Tetris Effect works is like the music syncs up with how fast you are Tetrising. Mm -hmm. I guess if that's the verb to Tetris. (laughs) Um, And like there's something that you're you're not trying to align with the music. The music aligns with you, but like there's something really satisfying about like placing a block as the beat hits. Mm-hmm. And I can see that being a similar vibe here. Um so yeah, that seems that seems really interesting. Cause yeah, it's even stuff as like your you know, a lot of these third person games have like a dodge roll. And this mm-hmm. game has that too, but it's the same thing if you dodge on the beat instead of being able to do like one in a row you can do like three dashes in a row on the beat every time and so there's like a lot of advantages to constantly be doing things on the beat and um just the way like the environment is set up um with everything moving to the beat i think it's just it's really well done Interesting. Yeah, I'm excited to check it out. It's pretty pretty new for me, I think, but it'll be it it seems like it's got the ingredients. So I'll I'm psyched to check it out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Hard Cell. We will be back in 2 weeks with my review of Hi-Fi Rush plus my pitch for Cody plus uh Whatever Cozy has planned will surprise us as per usual. In the meantime, uh, find us on Twitter at Hard Sell Show. Send us an email with either your uh, real life media pop up experiences or future pitches for us at hardsellshow at gmail.com. We probably at some point, unspecified in the future, will stream on twitch.tv slash hard sell show. Um, But until then, until our next episode in two weeks, we will catch you on the flippity flop. Catch you on the flippity flop.